Chapter fifty two of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter fifty two. I assist at an explosion. When the time Mr. Micawber had appointed so mysteriously was within four-and-twenty hours of being come, my aunt and I consulted on how we should proceed, for my aunt was very unwilling to leave Dora. Ah, how easily I carried Dora up and down stairs now! We were disposed, notwithstanding Mr. Micawber's stipulation for my aunt's attendance, to arrange that she should stay at home and be represented by Mr. Dick and me. In short, we had resolved to take this course when Dora again unsettled us by declaring that she never would forgive herself, and never would forgive her bad boy, if my aunt remained behind on any pretense. "'I won't speak to you,' said Dora, shaking her curls at my aunt. "'I'll be disagreeable. I'll make Jip bark at you all day. I shall be sure that you really are a cross old thing if you don't go.' "'Tut, Blossom,' laughed my aunt. "'You know you can't do without me.' "'Yes, I can,' said Dora. "'You are no use to me at all. You never run up and down stairs for me all day long. You never sit and tell me stories about Doady when his shoes were worn out and he was covered with dust. Oh, what a poor little mite of a fellow! You never do anything at all to please me, do you, dear?' Dora made haste to kiss my aunt and say, "'Yes, you do. I'm only joking,' lest my aunt should think she really meant it. "'But, aunt,' said Dora, coaxingly, "'now listen, you must go. I shall tease you till you let me have my own way about it. I shall leave my naughty boy such a life if he don't make you go. I shall make myself so disagreeable, and so will Jip. You'll wish you had gone like a good thing for ever and ever so long if you don't go. Besides,' said Dora, putting back her hair, and looking wonderingly at my aunt and me, "'why shouldn't you both go? I'm not very ill indeed, am I?' "'Why, what a question!' cried my aunt. "'What a fancy!' said I. "'Yes, I know that I am a silly little thing,' said Dora, slowly looking from one of us to the other, and then putting up her pretty lips to kiss us as she lay upon her couch. "'Well, then, you must both go, or I shall not believe you, and then I shall cry.' I saw in my aunt's face that she began to give way now, and Dora brightened again, as she saw it too. "'You'll come back with so much to tell me that it'll take at least a week to make me understand,' said Dora, "'because I know I shan't understand for a length of time if there's any business in it. And there's sure to be some business in it. If there's anything to add up besides, I don't know when I shall make it out, and my bad boy will look so miserable all the time. There, now you'll go, won't you? You'll only be gone one night, and Jip will take care of me while you are gone.' Dodie will carry me upstairs before you go, and I won't come down again till you come back, and you shall take Agnes a dreadful scolding letter from me because she has never been to see us. We agreed, without any more consultation, that we both would go, and that Dora was a little impostor who feigned to be rather unwell because she liked to be petted. She was greatly pleased and very merry, and we four, that is to say, my aunt, Mr. Dick, Traddles, and I, went down to Canterbury by the Dover Mail that night. At the hotel where Mr. Micawber had requested us to await him, which we got into with some trouble in the middle of the night, I found a letter importing that he would appear in the morning punctually at half-past nine, after which we went shivering at that uncomfortable hour to our respective beds, through various close passages which smelt as if they had been steeped for ages in a solution of soup and stables.
Early in the morning I sauntered through the dear old tranquil streets, and again mingled with the shadows of the venerable gateways and churches. The rooks were sailing about the cathedral towers, and the towers themselves, overlooking many a long unaltered mile of the rich country and its pleasant streams, were cutting the bright morning air, as if there were no such thing as change on earth. Yet the bells, when they sounded, told me sorrowfully of change in everything told me of their own age, and my pretty Dora's youth, and of the many, never old, who had lived and loved and died, while the reverberations of the bells had hummed through the rusty armour of the black prince hanging up within, and motes upon the deep of time had lost themselves in air, as circles do in water. I looked at the old house from the corner of the street, but did not go nearer to it, lest, being observed, I might unwittingly do any harm to the design I had come to aid. The early sun was striking edgewise on its gables and lattice windows, touching them with gold, and some beams of its old peace seemed to touch my heart. I strolled into the country for an hour or so, and then returned by the main street, which in the interval had shaken off its last night's sleep. Among those who were stirring in the shops I saw my ancient enemy the butcher, now advanced to top-boots and a baby, and in business for himself. He was nursing the baby, and appeared to be a benignant member of society. We all became very anxious and impatient when we sat down to breakfast. As it approached nearer and nearer to half-past nine o'clock, our restless expectation of Mr. Micawber increased. At last we made no more pretence of attending to the meal, which, except for Mr. Dick, had been a mere form from the first. But my aunt walked up and down the room, Traddles sat upon the sofa affecting to read the paper with his eyes on the ceiling, and I looked out of the window to give early notice of Mr. Micawber's coming. Nor had I long to watch, for, at the first chime of the half-hour, he appeared in the street. "'Here he is,' said I, and not in his legal attire. My aunt tied the strings of her bonnet—she had come down to breakfast in it—and put on her shawl, as if she were ready for anything that was resolute and uncompromising. Traddles buttoned his coat with a determined air. Mr. Dick, disturbed by these formidable appearances, but feeling it necessary to imitate them, pulled his hat with both hands as firmly over his ears as he possibly could, and instantly took it off again, to welcome Mr. Micawber. "'Gentlemen and madam,' said Mr. Micawber, "'good morning. My dear sir,' to Mr. Dick, who shook hands with him violently, "'you are extremely good.' "'Have you breakfasted?' said Mr. Dick. "'Have a chop.' "'Not for the world, my good sir,' cried Mr. Micawber, stopping him on his way to the bell. "'Appetite and myself, Mr. Dixon, have long been strangers.' Mr. Dixon was so well pleased with his new name, and appeared to think it so obliging in Mr. Micawber to confer it upon him, that he shook hands with him again, and laughed rather childishly. "'Dick,' said my aunt, "'attention!' Mr. Dick recovered himself with a blush. "'Now, sir,' said my aunt to Mr. Micawber, as she put on our gloves, "'we are ready for Mount Vesuvius, or anything else, as soon as you please.' Oh, "'Madam,' returned Mr. Micawber, "'I trust you will shortly witness an eruption. Uh, Mr. Traddles, I have your permission, I believe, to mention here that we have been in communication together.' "'It is undoubtedly the fact, Copperfield,' said Traddles, to whom I looked in surprise. "'Mr. Micawber has consulted me in reference to what he has in contemplation, and I have advised him to the best of my judgment.' "'Unless I deceive myself, Mr. Traddles,' pursued Mr. Micawber, "'what I contemplate is a disclosure of an important nature.' 
"'Highly so,' said Traddles. "'Perhaps under such circumstances, madam and gentlemen,' said Mr. Micawber, "'you will do me the favour to submit yourselves, for the moment, to the direction of one who, however unworthy to be regarded in any other light but as a waif and stray upon the shore of human nature, is still your fellow-man, though crushed out of his original form by individual errors, and the accumulative force of a combination of circumstances.' "'We have perfect confidence in you, Mr. Micawber,' said I, "'and will do what you please.' Uh, "'Mr. Copperfield,' returned Mr. Micawber, "'your confidence is not, at the existing juncture, ill-bestowed. I would beg to be allowed a start of five minutes by the clock, and then to receive the present company inquiring for Miss Wickfield at the office of Wickfield and Heap, whose stipendary I am.' My aunt and I looked at Traddles, who nodded his approval. "'I have no more,' observed Mr. Micawber, "'to say at present.' With which, to my infinite surprise, he included us all in a comprehensive bow, and disappeared, his manner being extremely distant, and his face extremely pale. Traddles only smiled and shook his head, with his hair standing upright on the top of it, when I looked at him for an explanation, so I took out my watch, and, as a last resource, counted off the five minutes. My aunt, with her own watch in her hand, did the like. When the time was expired, Traddles gave her his arm, and we all went out together to the old house, without saying one word on the way. We found Mr. Micawber at his desk in the turret office on the ground floor, either writing or pretending to write hard. The large office ruler was stuck into his waistcoat, and was not so well concealed but that a foot or more of that instrument protruded from his bosom, like a new kind of shirt-frill. As it appeared to me that I was expected to speak, I said aloud, "'How do you do, Mr. Micawber?' "'Mr. Copperfield,' said Mr. Micawber gravely, "'I hope I see you well.' "'Is Miss Wickfield at home?' said I. Uh, "'Mr. Wickfield is unwell in bed, sir, of a rheumatic fever,' he returned. "'But Miss Wickfield, I have no doubt, will be happy to see old friends. Will you walk in, sir?' He proceeded us to the dining-room, the first room I had entered in that house, and, flinging open the door of Mr. Wickfield's former office, said in a sonorous voice, uh, "'Miss Trotwood, Mr. David Copperfield, Mr. Thomas Traddles, and Mr. Dixon.' I had not seen Uriah Heep since the time of the blow. Our visit astonished him, evidently, not the less, I dare say, because it astonished ourselves. He did not gather his eyebrows together, for he had none worth mentioning, but he frowned to that degree that he almost closed his small eyes, while the hurried raising of his grisly hand to his chin betrayed some trepidation or surprise. This was only when we were in the act of entering his room, and when I caught a glance at him over my aunt's shoulder. A moment afterwards he was as fawning and as humble as ever. "'Well, I am sure.' he said this is indeed an unexpected pleasure to have as i may say old friends around st paul's at once is a treat unlooked for mr copperfield i hope i see you well and if i may humbly express myself so friendly towards them as is ever your friends whether or not uh, mrs copperfield sir i hope she's getting on we have been made quite uneasy by the poor accounts we have had of her state lately i do assure you I felt ashamed to let him take my hand, but I did not know yet what else to do. "'Things have changed in this office, Miss Trotwood, since I was an humble clerk and held your pony, ain't they?' 
said Uriah, with his slickest smile. "'But I am not changed, Miss Trotwood.' "'Well, sir,' returned my aunt, "'to tell you the truth, I think you are pretty constant to the promise of your youth, if that is any satisfaction to you.' "'Thank you, Miss Trotwood,' said Uriah, writhing in his ungainly manner, "'for your good opinion. Micawber, tell them to let Miss Agnes know, and Mother.' "'Mother would be quite in a state when she sees the present company,' said Uriah, setting chairs. "'You are not too busy, Mr. Heap,' said Traddles, whose eye the cunning red eye accidentally caught, as it at once scrutinised and evaded us. "'Now, Mr. Traddles,' replied Uriah, resuming his official seat and squeezing his bony hands, laid palm to palm between his bony knees. "'Not so much as I could wish.' "'But lawyers, sharks, and leeches are not easily satisfied, you know. "'Not but what myself and Mr. Micawber have our hands pretty full in general, "'on account of Mr. Wickfield's being hardly fit for any occupation, sir. "'But it's a pleasure, as well as a duty, I am sure, to work for him. "'You've not been intimate with Mr. Wickfield, I think, Mr. Traddles. "'I believe I've only had the honour of seeing you once myself.' "'No, I have not been intimate with Mr. Wickfield,' returned Traddles, "'or I might perhaps have waited on you long ago, Mr. Heap.' There was something in the tone of this reply which made Uriah look at the speaker again, with a very sinister and suspicious expression. But seeing only Traddles with his good-natured face, simple manner, and hair on end, he dismissed it as he replied with a jerk of his whole body, but especially his throat. "'I am sorry for that, Mr. Traddles. You would have admired him as much as we all do. His little failings would only have endeared him to you the more. But if you would like to hear my fellow-partner eloquently spoken of, I should refer you to Copperfield. The family is a subject he's very strong upon, if you never heard him.' I was prevented from disclaiming the compliment, if I should have done so in any case, by the entrance of Agnes, now ushered in by Mr. Micawber. She was not quite so self-possessed as usual, I thought, and had evidently undergone anxiety and fatigue, but her earnest cordiality and her quiet beauty shone with a gentler lustre for it. I saw Uriah watch her while she greeted us, and he reminded me of an ugly and rebellious genie watching a good spirit. In the meanwhile some slight sign passed between Mr. Micawber and Traddles, and Traddles, unobserved except by me, went out. "'Don't wait, Micawber said Uriah. Mr. Micawber, with his hand upon the ruler in his breast, stood erect before the door, most unmistakably contemplating one of his fellow-men, and that man his employer. "'What are you waiting for?' said Uriah. "'Micawber, did you hear me tell you not to wait?' "'Yes,' replied the immovable Mr. Micawber. "'Then why do you wait?' said Uriah. "'Because I, in short, choose,' replied Mr. Micawber, with a burst. Uriah's cheeks lost colour, and an unwholesome paleness, still faintly tinged by his pervading red, overspread them. He looked at Mr. Micawber attentively, with his whole face breathing short and quick in every feature. "'You are a dissipated fellow, as all the world knows,' he said with an effort at a smile, "'and I'm afraid you'll oblige me to get rid of you. Go along, I'll talk to you presently.' "'If there is a scoundrel on this earth,' said Micawber, suddenly breaking out again with the utmost vehemence, "'with whom I have already talked too much, that scoundrel's name is Heap!' 
Uriah fell back as if he had been struck or stung. Looking slowly round upon us with the darkest and wickedest expression that his face could wear, he said in a lower voice, "'Oh, this is a conspiracy. You have met here by appointment. You are playing booty with my clerk, are you, Copperfield? Now take care. You'll make nothing of this. We understand each other, you and me. There's no love between us. You were always a puppy with a proud stomach from your first coming here, and you envy me, my rise don't you none of your plots against me i'll counterplot you micawber you be off i'll talk to you presently uh, mr micawber said i there is a sudden change in this fellow in more respects than the extraordinary one of his speaking the truth in one particular which assures me that he is brought to bay deal with him as he deserves you are a precious set of people ain't you said uriah in the same low voice and breaking out into a clammy heat which he wiped from his forehead with his long lean hand to buy over my clerk it was the very scum of society as you yourself were copperfield and you know it before any one had charity on you to defame me with his lies miss trotwood you had better stop this or i'll stop your husband shorter than would be pleasant to you i won't know your story professionally for nothing old lady miss wickfield if you have any love for your father you had better not join that gang i'll ruin him if you do now come i've got some of you under the harrow think twice before it goes over you think twice you micawber if you don't want to be crushed i recommend you to take yourself off and be talked to presently you fool why there's time to retreat where's mother he said suddenly appearing to notice with alarm the absence of traddles and pulling down the bell-rope fine doings in a person's own house mrs heep is here sir said traddles returning with that worthy mother of a worthy son i have taken the liberty of making myself known to her who are you to make yourself known retorted uriah and what do you want dear i am the agent and friend of mr wickfield sir said traddles in a composed and business-like way and i have a power of attorney from him in my pocket to act for him in all matters the old ass has drunk himself into a state of doubtage said uriah turning uglier than before and it has been got from him by fraud something has been got from him by fraud i know returned traddles quietly and so do you mr heep we will refer that question if you please to mr micawber yuri mrs heep began with an anxious gesture hold your tongue mother he returned least said soonest mended but my yuri will you hold your tongue mother and leave it to me though i had long known that his servility was false and all his pretences knavish and hollow i had had no adequate conception of the extent of his hypocrisy until i now saw him with his mask off the suddenness with which he dropped it when he perceived that it was useless to him the malice insolence and hatred he revealed the leer with which he exulted even at this moment in the evil he had done all this time being desperate too and at his wit's end for the means of getting the better of us though perfectly consistent with the experience i had of him at first took even me by surprise who had known him so long and disliked him so heartily i say nothing of the look he conferred on me as he stood eyeing us one after another for i had always understood that he hated me and i remember the marks of my hand upon his cheek but when his eyes passed on to Agnes, and I saw the rage with which he felt his power over her slipping away, and the exhibition, in their disappointment, of the odious passions that had led him to aspire to one whose virtues he could never appreciate or care for, I was shocked by the mere thought of her having lived an hour within sight of such a man. 
after some rubbing of the lower part of his face and some looking at us with those bad eyes over his grisly fingers he made one more address to me half whining and half abusive you think it justifiable don't you copperfield you who pride yourself so much on your honour and all the rest of it to sneak about my place eavesdropping with my clerk if it had been me i shouldn't have wondered for i don't make myself out a gentleman though i never was in the streets either as you were according to mr micawber but being you and you're not afraid of doing this either you don't think at all of what i shall do in return or of getting yourself into trouble for conspiracy and so forth very well we shall see mr what's your name you are going to refer some question to mr micawber there's your referee why don't you make him speak he has learnt his lesson i see seeing that what he said had no effect on me or on any of us he sat on the edge of his table with his hands in his pockets and one of his splay feet twisted round the other leg waiting doggedly for what might follow mr micawber whose impetuosity i had restrained thus far with the greatest difficulty and who had repeatedly interposed with the first syllable of scoundrel without getting to the second now burst forward drew the ruler from his breast apparently as a defensive weapon and produced from his pocket a foolscap document folded in the form of a large letter opening this packet with his old flourish and glancing at the contents as if he cherished an artistic admiration of their style of composition he began to read as follows dear miss trotwood and gentlemen bless and save the man exclaimed my aunt in a low voice he'd write letters by the ream if it was a capital offence mr micawber without hearing her went on in appearing before you to denounce probably the most consummate villain that has ever existed mr micawber without looking off the letter pointed the ruler like a ghostly truncheon at uriah heep i ask no consideration for myself the victim from my cradle of pecuniary liabilities to which i have been unable to respond i have ever been the sport and toy of debasing circumstances ignominy want despair and madness have collectively or separately been the attendants of my career the relish with which mr micawber described himself as a prey to these dismal calamities was only to be equalled by the emphasis with which he read his letter and the kind of homage he rendered to it with a roll of his head when he thought he had hit a sentence very hard indeed in an accumulation of ignominy want despair and madness i enter the offence or as our lively neighbour the gall would term it the bureau of the firm nominally conducted under the appellation of wickfield and heap but in reality wielded by heap alone heap and only heap is the mainspring of that machine heap and only heap is the forger and the cheat uriah more blue than white at these words made a dart at the letter as if to tear it in pieces mr micawber with a perfect miracle of dexterity or luck caught his advancing knuckles with the ruler and disabled his right hand it dropped at the wrist as if it were broken the blow sounded as if it had fallen on wood the devil take you said uriah writhing in a new way with pain i'll be even with you approach me again you 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 heap of infamy gasped mr micawber and if your head is human i'll break it come on come on i think i never saw anything more ridiculous i was sensible of it even at the time than mr micawber making broadsword guards with a ruler and crying come on while traddles and i pushed him back into a corner from which as often as we got him into it he persisted in emerging again 
His enemy, muttering to himself after wringing his wounded hand for some time, slowly drew off his neckerchief and bound it up, then held it in his other hand and sat upon his table with his sullen face looking down. Mr. Micawber, when he was sufficiently cool, proceeded with his letter. The stipendary emoluments, in consideration of which I entered into the service of heap, always pausing before the word and uttering it with astonishing vigour, were not defined beyond the pittance of twenty-two shillings and six per week. The rest was let contingent on the value of my professional exertions. In other and more expressive words, on the baseness of my nature, the cupidity of my motives, the poverty of my family, the general moral, or rather immoral, resemblance between myself and heap. Need I say that it soon became necessary for me to solicit from heap pecuniary advances towards the support of Mrs. Micawber and our blighted but rising family? Need I say that this necessity had been foreseen by heap that those advances were secured by IOUs and other similar acknowledgments known to the legal institutions of this country, and that I thus became enmeshed in the web he had spun for my reception? Mr. Micawber's enjoyment of his epistolary powers in describing this unfortunate state of things really seemed to outweigh any pain or anxiety that the reality could have caused him. He read on. Then it was that Heep began to favour me with just so much of his confidence as was necessary to the discharge of his infernal business. Then it was that I began, if I may so Shakespeareanly express myself, to dwindle, peak, and pine. I found that my services were constantly called into requisition for the falsification of business, and the mystification of an individual whom I will designate as Mr. W. That Mr. W. was imposed upon, kept in ignorance, and deluded in every possible way, yet that all this while the ruffian, the heap, was professing unbounded gratitude to, and unbounded friendship for, that much-abused gentleman. That was bad enough, but, as the philosophic Dane observes, with that universal applicability which distinguishes the illustrious ornament of the Elizabethan era, worse remains behind. Mr. Micawber was so very much struck by his happy rounding off with a quotation, that he indulged himself and us with a second reading of the sentence, under pretense of having lost his place. It is not my intention, he continued reading on, to enter on a detailed list, within the compass of the present epistle, though it is ready elsewhere, of the various malpractices of a minor nature, affecting the individual whom I have denominated Mr. W., to which I have been a tacitly consenting party. Uh, my object, when the contest within myself between stipend and no stipend, baker and no baker, existence and non-existence, ceased, was to take advantage of my opportunities to discover and expose the major malpractices committed to that gentleman's grievous wrong and injury by heap. Stimulated by the silent monitor within, and by a no less touching and appealing monitor without, to whom I will briefly refer as Miss W., I entered a not unlaborous task of clandestine investigation, protracted now to the best of my knowledge, information, and belief, over a period exceeding twelve calendar months. He read this passage as if it were from an act of Parliament, and appeared majestically refreshed by the sound of the words. My charges against heap, 
He read on, glancing at him and drawing the ruler to a convenient position under his left arm in case of need. Are as follows. We all held our breath, I think. I am sure Uriah held his. First, said Mr. Micawber, when Mr. W.'s faculties and memories for business became, through causes into which it is not necessary or expedient for me to enter, weakened and confused, the heap designedly perplexed and complicated the whole of the official transactions. When Mr. W. was least fit to enter on business, heap was always at hand to force him to enter on it. He obtained Mr. W.'s signature under such circumstances to documents of importance, representing them to be other documents of no importance. He induced Mr. W. to empower him to draw out thus one particular sum of trust money amounting to twelve, six, fourteen, two and nine, and employed it to meet pretended business charges and deficiencies, which were either already provided for or had never really existed he gave this proceeding throughout the appearance of having originated in mr w s own dishonest intention and of having been accomplished by mr w s own dishonest act and has used it ever since to torture and constrain him you shall prove this you copperfield said uriah with a threatening shake of the head all in good time ask heep traddles who lived in this house after him said mr micawber breaking off the letter will you the fool himself and lives there now said uriah disdainfully ask keep if he ever kept a pocket-book in that house said mr micawber will you i saw uriah's lank hand stop involuntarily in the scraping of his chin nor ask him said mr micawber if he ever burnt one there if he says yes and asks you where the ashes are refer him to wilkins micawber and he will hear of something not at all to his advantage the triumphant flourish with which mr micawber delivered himself of these words had a powerful effect in alarming the mother who cried out in much agitation yuri yuri be humble and make terms my dear mother he retorted will you keep quiet you are in a fright and don't know what you say i mean amble he repeated looking at me with a snarl i've ambled some of em for a pretty long time back humble as i was mr micawber genteelly adjusting his chin in his cravat presently proceeded with his composition second heap has on several occasions to the best of my knowledge information and belief but that won't do muttered uriah relieved mother you keep quiet hey, we will endeavour to provide something that will do and do for you finally sir very shortly replied mr micawber the second he has on several occasions to the best of my knowledge information and belief systematically forged to various entries books and documents the signature of mr w and has distinctly done so in one instance capable of proof by me to wit in manner following that is to say again mr micawber had a relish in this formal piling up of words which however ludicrously displayed in his case was i must say not at all peculiar to him i have observed it in the course of my life in numbers of men it seems to me to be a general rule in the taking of legal oaths for instance deponents seem to enjoy themselves mightily when they come to several good words in succession for the expression of one idea as that they utterly detest abominate and abjure or so forth and the old anathemas were made relishing on the same principle 
We talk about the tyranny of words, but we like to tyrannize over them too. We are fond of having a large superfluous establishment of words to wait upon us on great occasions. We think it looks important and sounds well. As we are not particular about the meaning of our liveries on state occasions, if they be but fine and numerous enough, so the meaning or necessity of our words is a secondary consideration, if there be but a great parade of them. And as individuals get into trouble by making too great a show of liveries, or as slaves, when they are too numerous, rise against their masters, so I think I could mention a nation that has got into many great difficulties, and will get into many greater, from maintaining too large a retinue of words. Mr. Micawber read on, almost smacking his lips. To wit, in manner following, that is to say, Mr. W. being infirm, and it being within the bounds of probability that his decease might lead to some discoveries, and to the downfall of heaps power over the W. family, as I, Wilkins Micawber, the undersigned, assume, unless the filial affection of his daughter could be secretly influenced from allowing any investigation of the partnership affairs to be made, the said heap deemed it expedient to have a bond ready by him as from mr w for the before-mentioned sum of twelve six fourteen two and nine with interest stated therein to have been advanced by heap to mr w to save mr w from dishonour though really the sum was never advanced by him and has long been replaced the signatures to this instrument purporting to be executed by mr w and attested by wilkins micawber are forgeries by heap i have in my possession in his hand and pocket-book several similar imitations of mr w's signature here and there defaced by fire but legible to any one i never attested any such document and i have the document itself in my possession uriah heep with a start took out of his pocket a bunch of keys and opened a certain drawer then suddenly bethought himself of what he was about and turned again towards us without looking in it and i have the document mr micawber read again looking about as if it were the text of a sermon in my possession that is to say i had early this morning when it was written but i have since relinquished it to mr traddles it is quite true assented traddles yuri yuri cried the mother be amble and make terms i know my son will be amble gentlemen if you'll give him time to think mr copperfield i'm sure you know that he was always very amble sir it was singular to see how the mother still held to the old trick when the son had abandoned it as useless mother he said with an impatient bite at the handkerchief in which his hand was wrapped you had better take and fire a loaded gun at me but i love you yuri cried mrs heep and i have no doubt she did or that he loved her however strange it may appear though to be sure they were a congenial couple and i can't bear to hear you provoking the gentleman and endangering of yourself more i told the gentleman at first when he told me upstairs it was come to light that i would answer for your being humble and making amends i'll see how humble i am gentlemen and don't mind him why there's copperfield mother he angrily retorted pointing his lean finger at me against whom all his animosity was levelled as the prime mover in the discovery and i did not undeceive him there's copperfield who would have given you a hundred pounds to say less than you've blurted out i can't help it yuri cried his mother i can't see you running into danger through carrying your head so high better be humble as you always was 
He remained for a little, biting the handkerchief, and then said to me with a scowl, "'What more have you got to bring forward? If anything, go on with it. What do you look at me for?' Mr. Micawber promptly resumed his letter, glad to revert to a performance with which he was so highly satisfied. Third and last, I am now in a condition to show by heaps false books and heaps real memoranda, beginning with the partially destroyed pocket-book, which I was unable to comprehend at the time of its accidental discovery by Mrs. Micawber on our taking possession of our present abode, in the locker or bin devoted to the reception of the ashes calcined on our domestic heart, that the weaknesses, the faults, the very virtues, the parental affections, and the sense of honour of the unhappy Mr. W. have been for years acted on by and warped to the base purposes of heap, that Mr. W. has been for years deluded and plundered in every conceivable manner to the pecuniary aggrandizement of the avaricious, false, and grasping heap that the engrossing object of heap was next to gain to subdue Mr. and Miss W. Of his ulterior views in reference to the latter, I say nothing, entirely to himself. Oh, that his last act, completed but a few months since, was to induce Mr. W. to execute a relinquishment of his share in the partnership, and even a bill of sale on the very furniture of his house in consideration of a certain annuity, to be well and truly paid by heap on the four common quarter-days in each and every year, that these meshes, beginning with alarming and falsified accounts of the estate of which Mr. W. is the receiver, at a period when Mr. W. had launched into imprudent and and ill-judged speculations, and may not have had the money, for which he was morally and legally responsible, in hand, going on with pretended borrowings of money at enormous interest, really coming from heap, and by heap, fraudulently obtained or withheld from Mr. W. himself, on pretence of such speculations or otherwise, perpetuated by a miscellaneous catalogue of unscrupulous chicaneries, gradually thickened until the unhappy Mr. W. could see no world beyond, bankrupt, as he believed, alike in circumstances, in all other hope and in honour, his sole reliance was upon the monster in the garb of man. Mr. Micawber made a good deal of this, as a new turn of expression, who, by making himself necessary to him, had achieved his destruction. All this I undertake to show, probably much more. I whispered a few words to Agnes, who was weeping, half joyfully, half sorrowfully, at my side, and there was a movement among us, as if Mr. Micawber had finished. He said, with exceeding gravity, uh, pardon me, and proceeded with a mixture of the lowest spirits and the most intense enjoyment to the peroration of his letter. I have now concluded. It merely remains for me to substantiate these accusations, and then, with my ill-starred family, to disappear from the landscape on which we appear to be an encumbrance. This is soon done. It may be reasonably inferred that our baby will first expire of inanition, as being the frailest member of our circle, and that our twins will follow next in order. So be it. For myself, my Canterbury pilgrimage has done much. The imprisonment on civil process and want will soon do more. 
i trust that the labour and hazard of an investigation of which the smallest results have been slowly pieced together in the pressure of audacious avocations under grinding penurious apprehensions at rise of morn at dewy eve in the shadows of night under the watchful eye of one whom it were superfluous to call demon combined with the struggle of parental poverty to turn it when completed to the right account may be as the sprinkling of a few drops of sweet water on my funeral pyre i ask no more let it be in justice merely said of me as of a gallant and eminent naval hero with whom i have no pretensions to cope that what i have done i did in despite of mercenary and selfish objects for england home and beauty remaining always wilkins micawber much affected but still intensely enjoying himself mr micawber folded up his letter and handed it with a bow to my aunt as something she might like to keep there was as i had noticed on my first visit long ago an iron safe in the room the key was in it a hasty suspicion seemed to strike uriah and with a glance at mr micawber he went to it and threw the doors clanking open it was empty where are the box he cried with a frightful face some thief has stolen the box mr micawber tapped himself with the ruler i did when i got the key from you as usual but a little earlier and opened it this morning don't be uneasy said traddles they have come into my possession i will take care of them under the authority i mentioned you receive stolen goods do you cried uriah under such circumstances answered traddles yes what was my astonishment when i beheld my aunt who had been profoundly quiet and attentive make a dart at uriah heep and seize him by the collar with both hands you know what i want said my aunt a straight waistcoat said he no my property returned my aunt agnes my dear as long as i believed it had really been made away with by your father i wouldn't and my dear i didn't even to trot as he knows breathe a syllable of its having been placed here for investment but now i know this fellow's answerable for it and i'll have it trot come and take it away from him whether my aunt supposed for the moment that he kept her property in his neckerchief i'm sure i don't know but she certainly pulled at it as if she thought so I hastened to put myself between them, and to assure her that we would all take care that he should make the utmost restitution of everything he had wrongly got. This, and a few moments' reflection, pacified her, but she was not at all disconcerted by what she had done, though I cannot say as much for her bonnet, and resumed her seat composedly. During the last few minutes Mrs. Heap had been clamouring to her son to be humble, and had been going down on her knees to all of us in succession and making the wildest promises her son sat her down in his chair and standing sulkily by her holding her arm with his hand but not rudely said to me with a ferocious look what do you want done i will tell you what must be done said traddles has that copperfield no tongue muttered uriah i would do a good deal for you if you could tell me without lying that somebody had cut it out my uriah means to be humble cried his mother don't mind what he says good gentleman what must be done said traddles is this first the deed of relinquishment that we have heard of must be given over to me now here spouse i haven't got it he interrupted but you have said traddles therefore you know we won't suppose so and i cannot help avowing that this was the first occasion on which i really did justice to the clear head and the plain patient practical good sense of my old schoolfellow 
"'Then,' said Traddles, "'you must prepare to disgorge all that your rapacity has become possessed of, and to make restoration to the last farthing. All the partnership books and papers must remain in our possession, all your books and papers, all money accounts and securities of both kinds. In short, everything here.' "'Must it? I don't know that,' said Uriah. "'I must have time to think about that.' "'Certainly,' replied Traddles. "'But in the meanwhile, and until everything is done to our satisfaction, we shall maintain possession of these things, and beg you, in short, compel you, to keep to your own room, and to hold no communication with any one.' "'I won't do it,' said Uriah, with an oath. "'Maidstone Jail is a safer place of detention,' observed Traddles, "'and though the law may be longer in writing us, and may not be able to write us so completely as you can, there is no doubt of its punishing you.' "'Dear me, you know that quite as well as I. "'Copperfield, will you go round to the Guildhall and bring a couple of officers?' Here Mrs. Heap broke out again, crying on her knees to Agnes to interfere in their behalf, exclaiming that he was very humble, and it was all true, and if he didn't do what we wanted she would, and much more to the same purpose, being half frantic with fears for her darling.' To inquire what he might have done, if he had had any boldness, would be like inquiring what a mongrel cur might do, if it had the spirit of a tiger. He was a coward from head to foot, and showed his dastardly nature through his sullenness and mortification, as much as at any time of his mean life. "'Stop!' he growled at me and wiped his hot face with his hand. "'Mother, hold your noise. Well, let's him have that deed. Go and fetch it.' "'Do you help her, Mr. Dick?' said Traddles, if you please. Proud of his commission, and understanding it, Mr. Dick accompanied her as a shepherd's dog might accompany a sheep. But Mrs. Heap gave him little trouble, for she not only returned with the deed, but with the box in which it was, where we found a banker's book and some other papers that were afterwards serviceable. "'Good,' said Traddles, when this was brought. "'Now, Mr. Heap, you can retire to think.' particularly observing if you please that i declare to you on the part of all present that there is only one thing to be done and that it is what i have explained and that it must be done without delay uriah without lifting his eyes from the ground shuffled across the room with his hand to his chin and pausing at the door said copperfield i have always hated you you've always been an upstart you've always been against me as i think i have told you once before said i it is you who have been in your greed and cunning against all the world it may be profitable for you to reflect in future that there never were greed and cunning in the world yet that did not do too much and overreach themselves it is as certain as death or as certain as they used to teach at school the same school where i picked up so much ambleness from nine o'clock to eleven that labour was a curse and from eleven o'clock to one that it was a blessing and a cheerfulness and a dignity and i don't know what's all eh said he with a sneer you preach about as consistently as they did won't humbleness go down i shouldn't have got round my gentleman fellow-partner without it i think micawber you old bully i'll pay you micawber supremely defiant of him and his extended finger and making a great deal of his chest until he had slunk out at the door then addressed himself to me and proffered me the satisfaction of witnessing the re-establishment of mutual confidence between himself and mrs micawber after which he invited the company generally to the contemplation of that affecting spectacle 
Oh, the veil that has long been interposed between Mrs. Micawber and myself is now withdrawn, said Mr. Micawber, and my children and the author of their being can once more come in contact on equal terms. As we were all very grateful to him, and all desirous to show that we were, as well as the hurry and disorder of our spirits would permit, I dare say we should have all gone, but that it was necessary for Agnes to return to her father, as yet unable to bear more than the dawn of hope, and for someone else to hold Uriah in safe keeping. So Traddles remained for the latter purpose, to be presently relieved by Mr. Dick, and Mr. Dick, my aunt, and I went home with Mr. Micawber. As I parted hurriedly from the dear girl to whom I owed so much, and thought from what she had been saved, perhaps that morning, her better resolution notwithstanding, I felt devoutly thankful for the miseries of my younger days which had brought me to the knowledge of Mr. Micawber. His house was not far off, and as the street door opened into the sitting-room, and he bolted in with a precipitation quite his own, we found ourselves at once in the bosom of the family. Mr. Micawber exclaiming, "'Emma, my life!' rushed into Mrs. Micawber's arms. Mrs. Micawber shrieked, and folded Mr. Micawber in her embrace. Miss Micawber, nursing the unconscious stranger of Mrs. Micawber's last letter to me, was sensibly affected. The stranger leaped. The twins testified their joy by several inconvenient but innocent demonstrations. Master Micawber, whose disposition appeared to have been soured by early disappointment, and whose aspect had become morose, yielded to his better feelings and blubbered emma said mr micawber the cloud is passed from my mind mutual confidence so long preserved between us once is restored to know no further interruption now welcome poverty cried mr micawber shedding tears welcome misery welcome homelessness welcome hunger rags tempest and beggary a mutual confidence will sustain us to the end with these expressions mr micawber placed mrs micawber in a chair and embraced the family all round welcoming a variety of bleak prospects which appeared to the best of my judgment to be anything but welcome to them and calling upon them to come out into canterbury and sing a chorus as nothing else was left for their support but mrs micawber having in the strength of her emotions fainted away the first thing to be done even before the chorus could be considered complete was to recover her this my aunt and Mr. Micawber did, and then my aunt was introduced, and Mrs. Micawber recognised me. "'Excuse me, my dear Mr. Copperfield,' said the poor lady, giving me her hand, "'but I am not strong, and the removal of the late misunderstanding between Mr. Micawber and myself was at first too much for me.' "'Is this all your family, ma'am?' said my aunt. "'There are no more at present,' returned Mrs. Micawber. Oh, "'Good gracious, I didn't mean that, ma'am.' said my aunt i mean are all these yours madam replied mrs micawber it is a true bill and that eldest young gentleman now said my aunt musing what has he been brought up to it was my hope when i came here said mr micawber to have got wilkins into the church or perhaps i shall express my meaning more strictly if i say the choir but there was no vacancy for a tenor in the venerable pile for which this city is so justly eminent and he has in short he has contracted a habit of singing in public houses rather than in sacred edifices but he means well said mrs micawber tenderly i dare say my love rejoined mr micawber oh, that he means particularly well but i have not yet found that he carries out his meaning in any given direction whatsoever 
Master Micawber's moroseness of aspect returned upon him again, and he demanded, with some temper, what he was to do, whether he had been born a carpenter or a coach-painter any more than he had been born a bird, whether he could go into the next street and open a chemist's shop, whether he could rush to the next assizes and proclaim himself a lawyer, whether he could come out by force at the opera and succeed by violence, whether he could do anything without being brought up to something. My aunt mused a little while, and then said, "'Mr. Micawber, I wonder you have never turned your thoughts to emigration.' Uh, "'Madam,' returned Mr. Micawber, "'it was the dream of my youth, and the fallacious aspiration of my riper years.' I am thoroughly persuaded, by the by, that he had never thought of it in his life. "'Aye,' said my aunt, with a glance at me, "'why, what a thing it would be for yourselves and your family, Mr. and Mrs. Micawber, if you were to emigrate now.' "'Capital, madam, capital,' urged Mr. Micawber gloomily. Uh, "'That is the principle, I may say, the only difficulty, my dear Mr. Copperfield,' assented his wife. "'Capital,' cried my aunt, uh, "'but you are doing us a great service. Have done us a great service, I may say, for surely much will come out of the fire. And what could we do for you that would be half so good as to find the capital?' "'I could not receive it as a gift,' said Mr. Micawber, full of fire and animation. But if a sufficient sum could be advanced, say, at five per cent interest per annum upon my personal liability, say, my notes of hand, at twelve, eighteen, and twenty-four months, respectively, to allow time for something to turn up—could be, can be, and shall be, on your own terms, returned my aunt, if you say the word. Think of this now, both of you. Here are some people David knows going out to Australia shortly. If you decide to go, why shouldn't you go in the same ship? You may help each other. Think of this now, Mr. and Mrs. Micawber. Take your time and weigh it well. There is but one question, my dear ma'am, I could wish to ask, said Mrs. Micawber. Oh, the climate, I believe, is healthy. Finest in the world, said my aunt. Just so returned Mrs. Micawber. Then my question arises. Now, are the circumstances of the country such that a man of Mr. Micawber's abilities would have a fair chance of rising in the social scale? I will not say at present might he aspire to be governor or anything of that sort, but would there be a reasonable opening for his talents to develop themselves that would be amply sufficient and find their own expansion? No better opening anywhere said my aunt, for a man who conducts himself well and is industrious. For a man who conducts himself well, repeated Mrs. Micawber, with her clearest business manner, and is industrious. Precisely. It is evident to me that Australia is the legitimate sphere of action for Mr. Micawber. I entertain the conviction, my dear madam, said Mr. Micawber, that it is, under existing circumstances, the land, the only land, for myself and family, and that something of an extraordinary nature will turn up on that shore. It is no distance, comparatively speaking, and though consideration is due to the kindness of your proposal, I assure you that it is a matter of form. Shall I ever forget how, in a moment, he was the most sanguine of men looking on to fortune, nor how Mrs. Micawber presently discoursed about the habits of the kangaroo? Shall I ever recall the street of Canterbury on a market-day, without recalling him as he walked back with us, expressing, in the hardy, roving manner he assumed, the unsettled habits of a temporary sojourner in the land, and looking at the bullocks as they came by with the eye of an Australian farmer? 
End of chapter 52